Welcome back to the present stage, Conversations with Theatre Writers. My name is Dan Rubens and I'm a theatre critic, a composer, and an arts nonprofit leader. My guest today is Misha Chowdhury, who is the playwright of Public Obscenities, which ran last year at Soho Rep and now returns to New York at Theatre for a New Audience and is part of the Under the Radar Festival, which ran in January. And Misha Chowdhury is also the director of the play, which runs at Theatre for a New Audience until February 25th. If you've been listening to the present stage recently, you may have heard my conversation with Jeremy Tiang about his play Salesman Zaoshi, which is in both English and Mandarin. Since having that really amazing conversation, I've been thinking a lot about plays that represent multiple languages on stage, how that plays out in lots of different ways across multilingual theater. Um, and this is a continuation of that conversation in some ways. Uh, I was really grateful for the chance to dig in uh, with Misha Chowdhury and grateful for uh, the time he gave to be on the podcast. And because it is on the lengthier side of our conversations, we'll get right into it. Enjoy this conversation. Misha Chowdhury, welcome to the present stage. Thank you for having me. Excited to be here. So I want to start by asking you about this iteration of Public Obscenities, which is part of the Under the Radar Festival, which technically ended in January. And now this production is running at Theatre for a New Audience uh, through most of February. So I'm curious how, after your run of the show at Soho Rep last year, uh, this production came to be uh, and sort of what it was like to uh, bring it back to life in the, in this festival context. Totally. Um, yeah. I mean, I had never even imagined that the possibility of the play having this kind of immediate afterlife after the run at Soho Rep, because the run at Soho Rep was such a gift in and of itself. Um, but uh, a bunch of folks came to see the show at Soho Rep and that included um, Maria Goyanis at Woolly Mammoth and Jeffrey Horowitz um, from Theater for a New Audience um, and Mark Russell from Under the Radar. Um, and it seems now that there's this kind of, you know, there are these exciting collaborations happening between theaters um, in ways that perhaps weren't happening before in terms of how to make things possible in the in the climate that we're in. And so um, Woolly Mammoth and Theater for a New Audience were excited about uh, collaborating on co-presenting the play and bringing it to DC and having it come back up to theater for a new audience in Brooklyn. Um, and then Mark was also really excited about as he was sort of resurrecting under the radar, um, which has been a creative home for me in the past. Um, I was in the devised theater working group at the public and I did a piece at the, uh, at the public in under the radar right before the pandemic called Mukagni with my partner, Cameron Neal. And, um, it was really exciting uh, to think about what it would mean for public obscenities to be part of this new, this new resurrected under the radar festival. Um, and so it was just a really beautiful opportunity for the show to meet new audiences in different cities with very different kinds of audiences. I think under the radar festival and theater for a new audience have um, and Soho Rep and Willie Mammoth have very different audiences. So it's been exciting to see how the show meets those audiences. And it's been 
really exciting and heartening to see that each of those audiences meet the play with um, different kinds of enthusiasm, but but enthusiasm in each in each new context. And yeah, I just it's so rare that an artist gets to continue to evolve and develop a piece with the same cast over the course of a full year in different in different theaters, each of which has its own sort of like character and teaches me so much about the play. So um, yeah, I just um, have so much gratitude for all of these different theaters and institutions for coming together to support the play in this collaborative way. Do you find that an under the radar audience, which may be more primed than your standard New York audience for uh, engaging with things that feel more experimental or or sure. uh, different modes of storytelling are are responding to particular moments or or elements of the play differently than in the past productions um i mean it's hard i mean the the under the radar audience wasn't was never a discrete audience that we could sort of like engage sure. <laughs> because the radar was part of this sort of like larger theater for a new audience audience that we were meeting but i hadn't you know, I do think that the audience that we built at Soho Rep, um, because Soho Rep audiences are also, in some ways, public obscenities um, was uh, precisely what a Soho Rep play is and should be, which is that it that Soho Rep's plays, it's like, what is a Soho Rep play? Every, every piece they do is a kind of uh departure from anything they've done before. And there's that that interest in in doing sort of uh, new, unnameable work. Um, but Public Obscenities is in many ways a, a much more uh, sort of, you know, naturalistic family drama than you might see at Soho Rep. Usually, usually you don't see a play with an intermission at Soho Rep. And so the fact that this piece in particular um, was born at Soho Rep uh, in the context of that sort of downtown experimental life that maybe under the radar is also <laughs> in in family with, in kinship with, um, is a you know like an interesting genesis for the piece now that it's in these larger uh, houses at Woolly and Tifana and meeting audiences that um, I don't know I mean I haven't I haven't sort of clocked a uh, like. I think that the experience, my personal experience sitting in the audience and watching the show um, at each of these theaters hasn't been, uh, it, it is radically different because the show is radically different to me, but each night, depending on who's in the audience, whether the audience is a mostly young queer audience or a Bengali speaking audience, or, um, you know, the, the temperature of the room changes dramatically. Um, but I wouldn't say that that is sort of like that there is a sort of like uniform character to those audiences at each of the different theaters. Um, it's just exciting to be in, in larger, uh, to have, you know, 267 people seeing it a night instead of 65 people. That makes the sort of alchemy of the room different in exciting ways. Sure. Um, and I'm certainly grateful for the, the these afterlives because I, I was one of the folks who multiple times went to try to get off the wait list at, at the Soho Rep run oh, and no, unsuccessfully. Good, so good, good. I'm glad I finally made it. Um, I have a lot of questions about language in this play, unsurprisingly. Um, 
And I think I want to start with, I interviewed a few months ago, uh, the playwright Jeremy Chiang, um, who had a um, really interesting play, Salesman Zhaoshi, um, uh downtown, um, which was uh, a, a bilingual play in English and Mandarin. And we spoke a lot about how the play worked differently for English-speaking audiences and Mandarin-speaking audiences and, and multilingual audiences. Um, and I'm curious to start out, um, I was sitting when I saw uh, the show at Theatre for a New Audience a couple weeks ago um, behind a couple of audience members who clearly were responding to um, all of the Bangla text. And I'm curious sort of what um, you feel like the audience experience uh, is across sort of the range of language engagement that audience might have um, with the language spoken in the play. Yeah, I mean, I always am marvel at the fact that I can never experience the play from a non-Bangla speaking audience's uh, point of view, which sort of is, you know, I'm like, I wish I could just step into that experience um, for a day just to experience the play differently, because I think there is such this, there, there is such a beautiful thing that's happening in the audience because each audience has Bangla speakers in it and non-Bangla speakers in it and the like the demographics of the audience and the sort of like relationship between those sort of different uh like folks entering the play from different characters as points of view I think that is the most sort of interesting thing to me that because the the characters in the play themselves have different relationships to fluency um and not only just in terms of bang bangla but also like what audience members are fluent in grinder and fluent in like a sort of queer bengali vernacular or like um have a certain familiarity or fluency with like the kind of chat vocabulary that the uncle and this woman right. in minnesota have. i feel like there are so many different uh like orientations to words language that you can sort of like see from scene to scene um like how proximity to or distance from uh the the language that is like most uh that is center stage in each scene sort of like creates this kind of wave in the audience that is is really beautiful um and that you sort of that you know, in the first scene of the play, non-Bangla speaking audience members are having Rahim's experience of the right. play versus Bangla audience members who might be having, and even amongst the Bangla speaking audience members, you know, like uh, Bangla speaking audience members who might be having the aunt and uncle's experience uh, in terms of like, you know, like I have family members who might not be able to like catch the like American English that Chotun and Rahim are speaking um, at the pace that they're speaking it at. Um, and so those different kinds of like uh, ways in and access to language, I think are are what excite me most about how the play moves and about how, to, how audiences meet it. But I think that um, thus far, it feels as though the, there's like, even though people are coming at it from different sort of like, uh entry points of language um it's not as if they're getting different well you know like it's it's it, it to me i think I, i've been experiencing how it's like 
the the tempo or pace or rhythm at which people sort of like arrive at um certain kinds of comprehension and understanding those are different um but that that is always kind of the experience of anything that we watch like how like how quickly people put certain puzzle pieces together and i think it's just interesting to have these sort of like explicit sort of like language distinctions be a big be a big part of how those how quickly people arrive at um like even just in real time it's just sort of like the person that hears the like you know like somebody who hears the language versus reading the subtitle there's like sort of like a millisecond of of uh difference in terms of how quickly they receive the line and that's interesting to me um because we never you know like we see that in cinema um but we don't necessarily like watch uh i you know like watching watching that happen live in a theater um with live performers is is fascinating to me because i haven't seen it before and and to connect to the sort of digital languages that you spoke about sort of the 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 vocabularies of grinder and the billiards online chat room um that also at least um in those sort of chat scenes that we see projected we also the audience has to sort of do like read and then sort of do it process at their own sort of reading pace so that's kind of mirrored there too i'm curious in terms of the subtitles how you made choices about what scenes to subtitle in english or supertitle in english um as you said the first scene for me as someone who's not a bungalow speaker felt very much sort of filtered through Rahim's experience because he's sort of the stand-in linguistically um, for what I was experiencing um, and sort of dependent on Choton's translations to understand. Um, and then you sort of release the audience in a way from seeing things through his point of view when we're actually in the scene uh, where Choton is talking to Shu and Rahim is setting up the camera. Rahim is not understanding, but we are. Um, so how did you sort of think about where how when super titles felt like the the right moment to let an audience like let all audience members in um and and shut some characters out yeah i think the way that you described it is is exactly how i was thinking about it it felt important to me to subtitle in uh when i wanted the audience to be primarily having Rahim's experience versus Chodun's experience. I think that is kind of like, you know, like in scene one, um, in scene one, it felt important that like that different audience members be having different uh, experiences by virtue of like which character was their kind of linguistic proxy in the play. Um, and um, thenceforward, it was it was kind of like, um, you know, the scenes that we don't have subtitled after that are the scenes uh, that primarily feature Rahim and and not Chotun. Um, and so the like Bangla that is being spoken in those scenes are like we comprehend as little or as much as Rahim does. And that felt important, important because Rahim is sort of like those are scenes in which um, you know, he's sort of asking questions of the aunt or sort of like having an unexpectedly intimate conversation with the uncle or like 
in this place of non-translation with Jitesh, um, the, the, the caretaker of the house. And so in those scenes, it felt important for us not to be like, uh, like, getting more than Rahim is getting. Um, but then, of course, in, you know, the the play is, you know, 50% in Bengali. And um, it felt as though in the scenes in which Chotun was having, like, that we were sort of like stepping into Chotun's experience, interviewing show or talking to his family members, um, even though Rahim couldn't understand it. Um, it was a little bit of a just sort of like, yeah, like guiding, guiding non-Bangla speaking audience members. Um, it makes me think about like novels that I, you know, like Barbara King Solver's The Poisonwood Bible that I re liked when I was like, uh, you know, just sort of like, oh, we're suddenly experiencing this chapter is telling the same story, but from this sister's point of view. And so that kind of like explicit, explicit point of view shifting was was mostly how I was thinking about when and when not to subtitle. I'm you you mentioned uh the moments with uh, Rahim and Jitesh, which I think are maybe my favorite scenes in the play. Um mm. because in a way it feels like because they have no ability to speak each other's languages, um, they seem sort of freed from sort of the pressures of language that are so sort of looming over every other scene and they can have a conversation that's fully focused on just trying to understand each other and not try to sort of translate or mediate or um and i wonder how you sort of and there are some funny moments in those scenes too where raheem realizes he doesn't remember the english word for mortar and pestle and they discover Probably. that camera is the same in both languages but sort of how did you think about uh crafting those scenes um where they of course they have to invent their own language to communicate and and not not sort of lean on sort of pieces of, of words they know yeah i love the way that you described those scenes i always feel so i feel like hearing people talk about moments in the plays are still so um illuminating for me because i'm like oh yeah that is what's happening there um yeah i mean it just felt i mean you know, my whole approach to writing the play, you know, there wasn't a kind of like, it felt as though I was just sort of like stepping into scenarios that I knew needed to occur. Like I was like, um, oh, uh, you know, I want Rahim and Jitish to be alone together. Um and those moments of them being alone together um, sort of like taught me how how that how to sort of like experience their vocabulary. Like it wasn't it wasn't like I knew what I want what those scenes how those scenes wanted to operate, but it was just kind of like by that point I knew the characters so well that I was like oh, it always felt like I was just sort of listening for like, well, what would what would Rahim actually say and what would Chitish actually say to them and to him back? And what are the ways in which they would be like, it's like, oh, like how would, you know, like a gesture, like sipping tea, uh, like both teach 
Rahim what it was that Jitesh was asking in that moment and and the non-Bangla speaking audience what he was asking in that moment. Um, and yeah, and it did feel as though like I it's not as though I went into that that scene between the two of them in act two wanting to write something about them being sort of freed from like the sort of tempo and pressures of translation but that was something that i discovered while writing it because it's also that there is less language and more uh space for listening when uh when folks can't be as verbal with one another as as you know people who speak the same language like the when that fluency isn't available between the two of them there was a lot of like I was like, oh, what, like, what is, how do I tell a story through the sort of like nitty gritty of these mundane actions and like lighting a joint and blowing the smoke out the window. And um, it just feels like such a, it, because there is so much language in other parts of the play, it was a kind of like beautiful discovery that like, just by virtue of putting Jitesh and Rahim in the same room, the like tempo and and sort of like verbal verbosity of the day dramatically. Yeah, I um in talking about sort of those spaces or created by sort of these mundane moments, I am curious about I think I was really struck by moments that felt very specific while not being sort of inherently dramatic maybe so there's a conversation between Rahim and Choton in the second scene I guess about like looking for the phone charger and then plugging the phone charger in um, which are sort of not immediately kind of charged in any in any sort of explicit like this is dramatically why this moment is occurring and but I think and I'm just curious when you're when you're writing sort of uh sort of hyper-naturalistic moments that um, uh, sort of in other contexts, someone might say like, why, why is this here? Why is this necessary? Um, to me, it sort of feels like it's providing space for a director and actors to sort of flesh out these relationships in ways that will pay off later on and, and sort of let us in um, to sort of who these characters are to each other and sort of like, glimpses of tensions that will sort of bloom in different moments of the play. I don't know how you think about the moments that, because I think there are moments later in the play and throughout the play that are, um, are, are feel um, very, maybe not heightened, um, but extremely charged, not to pun on the, sure. gender, but the, uh, but I'm, I'm curious sort of how you thought about moments like that and, and sort of building, building those throughout. Yeah. And again, I think it's like, it's, it's, it's super interesting for me to hear you talk about the ways in which those like talking about those moments as discrete and how they sort of operate in the play and, and what they do in terms of like, allowing certain kinds of, you know, like the moment that you're talking about with the phone charger and the mosquito net setting up and like, <clears throat> Again, it's not as though I went into writing that thinking to myself like, oh, 
this will allow us to learn X, Y, and Z about Rahim and Choton or sort of like allow us to have um, the kind of space that we need to um, like feel what nighttime is like in the house. I just like couldn't help but sort of like uh, write each scenario um, with the kind of like I was like this this must occur like this these given circumstances um, like I think I I think I was allowing myself to be um, like really diligent with myself about like thinking about the actual mundane activity that uh, like. A, a particular scenario would uh, require. And I think that's something I think about a lot in storytelling that we consume. Like, I'm like, oh, nobody goes to the bathroom. Like, right. why, like, where is, all the, like, where is all the, like, I go to, I've been to the bathroom three times already this morning. Like, where is that in the, like, and so just sort of like, um, it felt as though, and then of course, you know, there were all kinds of like, editing and trimming of fat that happened throughout the sort of like rewriting process of the play. But then it became clear that like, oh no, there's a lot that we do learn about um, uh, like the story of these characters from the way in which Choton uh, like asks Rahim to plug in his uh, cell phone or what sort of the dynamic between the two of them and the power dynamic between the two of them or the kind of like uh you know like the character of their relationship and i think that was also important to me you know because the play is like it's semi-autobiographical none of the plot is uh autobiographical but the like sort of like the world and the characters are drawn from my own life um, and i wanted to write this sort of interracial queer couple that um like that in which the relationship wasn't about any of the, 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 the that it wasn't like, oh, um, how we come to know this couple is through the matrix of their identities um, that like we come to sort of see the real like specificity of um, how these how these two people operate differently when in private intimately um, in the space of their couple dumb uh, versus with other people. And I think that maybe that's the place from which all of that came just sort of like behavior in quote unquote public versus behavior, behavior in private, even though it's taking space inside of this house. Um, <clears throat> like I feel like so much of, uh, of, you know, like couples life is about uh, these like really granular mundane things that we do um, and that there is a kind of like subterranean drama um, that happens inside of those little things that I wanted to to see what it felt like to to, to animate the relationship through those things from the very beginning. Right. Um, I think the one moment that stood out to me as certainly something that could happen, but requires sort of a non-naturalistic staging is the crow flying in to the house. Um, 
which barring at a well-trained crow is sort of unstageable in, in this context and sort of demands the audience to suspend their disbelief or use their imagination um, in a in a different way than you've asked the audience to do um, before. And it sort of happens at a very pivotal moment in the plot. I'm curious how that, how you decided to sort of place that moment there and, and sort of imagine it. Yeah, I mean, to be frank, I mean, from the beginning, I was, this is one of the things, the challenges that I set for the that writer me set for director me that I um from the outset I was like we have to have a live crow um in a purely like I was like that's what like nothing is nothing is magical in this play everything must be um real but then of course you know as with so many other um uh sort of like limits set you free moments in the transition from writing it to directing it um it was an interesting sort of um opportunity to think about how uh the um the motif of the developing photographs uh that we were sort of discovering in the design process could dovetail with this invisible crow in a way that just had a um sort of aesthetic payoff or dramaturgical payoff that was just about the fact that like oh we can't we can't see this crow and this crow is operating in this kind of like death harbinger um kind of way and like is what is what the aunt you know like was there you know was there ever a you know, she says that she saw this crow after her father died and did she see it and who saw it? And she was the only one who was there to see it. And so, you know, like Jitesh and Rahim see this crow um, as Bishes, Bishes is sort of like dead or dying behind them. And like, what is the, you know, like it just sort of like allowed me to think in a, in a magical realistic way for the first time in this in the dramaturgy of the play and then the fact that like Raheem snaps this photo of the crow and then we see the shadow of the crow in, in the photo that develops um it felt like it was a way of like solving the practical challenge of the play in a way that sort of uh opened up uh sort of a possibility um in in terms of like thinking about what the crow was really or for whom and um but you know we did i mean like i made i learned a lot about how much it costs to use a live crow and <laughs> how uh like uh, how cost prohibitive that is but yeah i mean that was the one thing where i was kind of like um like oh i really have to do something as a director that is perhaps different than what the writer in me wanted. Um, and approaching that challenge was an interesting um, troubleshooting moment. Yeah. Um, I'm curious in writing the play, did you always intend to direct it and sort of are, were, are you, do you feel that when you've written uh, with your own staging in mind, does that change 
the way that you approach the text in, in creating it? Yeah, I mean, my training is as a director. And so it's the writing, it's the sort of like writing of this kind of play that was the new thing for me. Um, and uh, so I didn't, I mean, like, I knew that likely I would be directing the play. I allowed myself to write it, keeping open the possibility that um, I wouldn't direct it just so that I wasn't like burdening my writer self with um, my own sort of like director brain um, constraints. Um, but it did feel, it, it felt like um, ultimately once we started to, once I had a first draft and I started to turn my brain towards directing it, um, there was a, there was so much about the writing of the play that I learned from um, the like very specific experience of like developing this world with the cast as a director. Um, there are so many rewrites that have happened between the Soho Rap iteration and this iteration that I don't think uh, that I think are are right and good and feel like uh, sort of clearer and more muscular dramaturgy. Um, that I don't know that I would have been able to come to if I weren't sort of like inside the inside the play from a, a from a director's experience. Um, and so much of that is also just the enormous gift of getting to like deepen the thing with the same cast over such a long period of time. Um, but yeah, I was pretty diligent with myself about like doing the thing kind of sequentially rather than like, I wasn't, I mean, certainly my directorial sensibilities influenced how I wrote the play, um, but I wasn't like picturing it in space in terms of like design. Uh, I was sort of like for the first time in my life trying to write something on the page first um, before then translating it into three dimensions. And I think that was a useful exercise for me. <laughs> Right. Um, I want to talk a bit about Choton's research and um, sort of the, the whole world of queer identities in India that he's delving into as a as a scholar. Um, his title, Public Obscenity is Queer Vernaculars in a Still Colonial City. And uh, I'm, I guess I'm curious first in in terms of um, whether um, sort of how you thought about what uh, characters we would actually meet who are his subjects of his research in terms of the variety of sort of culturally specific queer identities. Um, we meet a, a Hijra character and a Koti character, um, sort of how you determine sort of what, what representation the play would include and also sort of obviously that's you as the playwright but also Chotona as the researcher making those decisions too so sort of how you thought about those layers of sort of what he would pursue and, and what you wanted to show as well. Totally I mean I think that um, it felt well it it felt important to me that we understand um, <clears throat> we understand Choton and his sort of like 
desire for what like Golgatha wants to be for him through his uh the kind of like the way in which he romanticizes um certain kinds of uh queer folks in Golgatha um and so you know off stage he talks about you know he is interviewing other <clears throat> queer subjects that we don't meet. Um, and there's a moment in scene seven when he's talking to Raheem about the fact that like this guy in the coffee house was too academic. And, you know, certainly there are other like, uh, you know, like gay men that he is interviewing that he has met on Grindr that might, uh, uh, you know, inhabit a similar sort of like class position to himself or like are closer to his own skin in terms of gender identity. And, um, it's it, it felt important to me that like what Choton finds to be sort of like true or real or what he is like after um, is represented by these characters that like uh, express their queerness um, very differently than the kind of like uh verbal sort of language oriented approach to queerness that um Chodon is comfortable in um and so it just felt accurate to me that uh that show uh would be the kind of uh you know young queer koti person in Wolgata that Chodon would uh sort of latch onto as a kind of like this is what real queer Kolkata is um and but then also you know like my own it, my own experiences sort of like in my early 20s going back to Kolkata as a queer person and sort of like uh meeting different kinds of folks certainly played into writing show and Shibunti's characters and I do think like there um is a certain kind of fascination that I had and that Choton also has with like, because Choton, even though he sort of seems to understand, at least like in a kind of analytical way, these different gender categories that Cho and Shebunti represent, um, they're, they, he has been socialized as queer in the States. Um, and so he, is trying to like he is simultaneously asking them what their pronouns are but also equivocating with an understanding of the fact that like that might not be the right kind of question and so like the distance between the fact that the fact that there is a queer world in Kolkata that like uh, uh that there is a queer language in Kolkata that Choton is not fluent in um, that there is a world that like that sort of like punctures his sort of like sense of his own mastery of his mother tongue um, is I wanted to sort of like and that's where Shebunti came it, it felt really important to me that like show not be this that we sort of like experience very briefly like this other entire world that is in that exists in the space between show and shibunti that there is this whole other life that show lives that is not the life that we sort of experience through 
Choton's sort of like interview lens and that whatever performance show is doing for Choton, that there is this like other sort of like untranslated experience that's happening between Shebunti and show that we get to get this little glimpse of. Um, and I didn't, you know, like all, a lot of it also had to do with uh, the those characters evolved um, through working with Nafis and Dashnuva as well, because I think those characters... Koti and Hija are sort of like complicated, expansive um, categories. Um, and there are all kinds of like differently nuanced uh, gender performances and experiences that could live inside the category, inside the character of show. So I think show could be played um, by somebody who might read quite differently in terms of gender to us here in the States because people who identify as Koti really run the gamut from like what we might describe as femme of center gay men, uh, folks who might sort of like we who might identify as trans, who might identify as non-binary when they're sort of describing themselves in a Western context or in English. Um, so, yeah, it was just really exciting to see those characters come to life through the particular uh, like uh, expressions that the Shnuva and Nafis bring to them. And it's interesting, and, and I just had this thought that we've been talking about earlier, sort of Rahim sort of navigating a world in which he doesn't have the language and is sort of trying to find his way exactly. into that. And then that's sort of echoed by Shoton coming in uh, to to another space where he in, may imagine himself to have more fluency than he actually does. I had written down, because I was thinking about the idea that he has all this sort of cultural hybridity and and deep sort of cultural understanding of a childhood spent often in this home in this community um but his queerness is sort of rooted as you said in the united states and i i wrote down sort of is his queerness untranslatably american um totally. and and you have a moment where he is explaining to show in some um I'm making this for our queer community. And I feel like each of those last three words sort of are sort of lo loaded in a sense, like is is there Absolutely. an, uh, is, is, is he part of an hour that is shared with them? And is the, is the word queer one that resonates with them, which it seems to not, and sort of is, is there actually a community that extends beyond a, a sort of regional identity or a regional totally. understanding of what that means? And I feel like um, I, I think the ways that, language is is woven in sort of these domestic scenes and then also into um his research is really um so so complex and and fascinating yeah yeah and i would say also that it i i love the way that you sort of parsed that line because i think um that and that is also it's not just about region because and i think the way that you put it is really beautiful um and i i also think that choton it's also so much about like class and education because i do think there are folks in kolkata that uh choton is encountering that we don't get to know in the play who are also like socialized into a kind of queerness um and Maybe we describe that as Western or American um, by virtue of the fact that, but in some ways I don't, I like, 
it may not even be so much an American queerness because I think a similar set of like disfluencies would exist for Chotun between himself and like queer folks in America that like are not, you know, like whose parents is, parents aren't professors at Stanford and who aren't right. studying at UCLA. And so I think it's actually more like this kind of like, uh, like global academic queerness, uh, a kind of like middle or upper middle class queerness um, that exists both in in Kolkata and in the states and probably in every major metropolis in the world. Um, that is like, but I don't know that Chotun would describe it as such. I think he would probably sort of like see it as an American queerness um, that he's trying to, and he he's often talk he's talking about the fact that it's like oh, this is an Anglo-centric approach to queerness or a sort of like Western approach, approach to queer, queerness. And the critique that I was kind of like subtly interested in is that like Choton sloughs all of that off. On, like he like his critique is always one of like, this is a function of colonialism and of like uh, sort of like Western sort of linguistic imperialism. Um, but that like what... Uh, what what Shebunti actually sees him as is like a Brahmin, you know, like, you know, like it's, and not that he only that, but that like what Choton doesn't really sort of like, he, he is, he is so invested in trying to sort of like heal the wound of his sort of like migration and displacement to uh, the West that like, he doesn't register that like there is as much distance between his aunt and uncle and the there is as much sort of like uh like there are you know like the registers of language that exist in Golgata uh between the class that he inhabits and the classes that show and Shibunti come from um that that distance was already there he didn't need to go to America to like uh create that distance if that makes any kind of sense yeah no that does and i think it's interesting that i wonder <laughs> sort of if this character carried out a similar study in the u.s totally. in, in other spaces or regions or communities um whether whether his approach would be quite as sort of romanticized if you use that word um as totally. here um and and to go back to the sort of coffee shop interview that you referred to earlier i think that the the text he says is that he said like that wasn't real because he was speaking in English and, and a sense of like totally. that's if it's not sort of my sort of imagination of what what this should be um then it's not what I'm looking for there's a there's a moment that I didn't catch in the in seeing it that I when in re reading the script really struck me when he begin I think what's happening is he begins to say to Rahim that he felt in his conversation with Shoen Shibunti that he was being used by his interview subjects in some way. And then he sort of trails off and doesn't finish the thought, um, which I found so fascinating because I think sort of throughout, there's this underlying question that you're posing of how is he using his interview subjects or what is what is he sort of taking from them? And the sort of this moment where we, he he's feeling like he's being manipulated in some way. Um, totally. Is so, is so um, just sort of is another moment of those really complex, sort of complex, confusing um, sort of experiences that he's having, um, which I think really sort of adds to the richness of everything that we're experiencing.
Yeah, I think that's what uh, that show in Shibunti moment and the play, why it's such a powerful moment for me is that like the perceived Choton sort of like imagines himself always to be trying to like mitigate a power that he imagines he holds um, in relationship to to show in Shibunti. But I do think like the, like the fact that he like begins to feel sort of like rejected and left out right. uh, by these two characters at the end of that scene. Like, you know, he, I, I, like he is not, he is the, like, he's the one that wants something from them. Um, and, and, you know, like Sho and Shibunti also want something from, uh, from Choton perhaps, or Sho perhaps does. Um, but that like, there is so much sort of like existential validation that Choton is sort of seeking from Sho um, that like, he's actually the one that I think is in a, you know, like, the show is the one that has something to give that is in a position of power vis-a-vis <laughs> -vis yeah. Chotun. Um, and I think we sort of clock that by the end of that scene, hopefully, maybe. I think I like sort of <laughs> the use of the word perhaps. I feel like there's a lot of sort of perhapsness in the in the play, which I don't I, I think I'm not gonna ask you any questions about sort of the the photograph of Chotun's grandfather, because I feel like that's sort of a deliberate perhapsness that I don't want to sort of ask you what the truth is or what it means or what the backstory is. Right, right. Um, but I think that that, that sort of um, it's sort of the that you allow things to sort of have the audience sort of experience in their own way and sort of interpret and sort of question and say like, is that what's happening or is that what that character is experiencing? Um, and not sort of forcing things out of characters that that sort of don't feel natural. Um, I want to ask you two more questions before we wrap up. One of them is of uh, um, uh, sort of along this line in sort of language and queerness. Um, I found it really interesting that um, the uh, Choton's aunt and uncle basically never refer to his queerness or or the fact that he and obviously they're letting them stay in the same. They understand that he's queer and he refers to his family sort of having accepted him saying I can be a, a gay as long as I get a PhD in gay and sort of this he says super culturally specific way way of being accepted um but I I think I think most playwrights would feel sort of compelled to sort of have these these hosts refer to queerness in some explicit way and I'm curious what if you if that I don't think that's necessarily a, a omission that most audience members would say oh I was looking for that scene or I noticed that um, but I think it's sort of striking in sort of reading the play closely that that moment isn't there or that conversation isn't present so I'm curious whether that was something you sort of thought about deliberately if imagined a conversation that had already taken place or is it just sort of a silent presence throughout yeah I mean it's just sort of like pulled from I, I do think it's deliberate and I think it is just sort of like pulled from my own from that feels quite autobiographical um and uh I just wanted to and I know that that is not uh like a universal sort of like 
queer return experience. Um, and I wanted to sort of like honor the specificity of like my own experience as far as that like articulation is concerned. And it's like, there are so many, uh, you know, my partner and I go back to Kolkata all the time and um, like, you know, my aunt will come and <clears throat> like, we'll be like in the bedroom, like naked under a sheet and she'll just sort of like plop herself down on the bed next to us. And there's no sort of like squeamishness about uh, like who we are or what we're doing, but there's also never any sort of like language around it. Like my partner is just referred you know, it's always like she's asked, she always asks me how Cameron is doing. Um, but like, there's no, uh, and she knows who we are to each other, but it perhaps is just like, and it is perhaps like a, a like language thing to you know, word for like a boyfriend or a partner and uh, like, uh, you know, like, husband isn't right and like so what is the and so there's like a kind of you know even in the first chat scene Bisha uh like type types to Minnesota lady like his friend also um and and that's not from the sort of like expected place of like he thinks that Raheem is just Choton's friend but that like that is the my family in India uses friend to describe my partner um not i don't think from a place of like sort of like diminishing the relationship in their mind but that is the only sort of like language they have available to them to sort of like describe the relationship um and so that just felt like a very sort of like true and unusual experience that i wanted to stick to in 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 writing the play yeah and maybe not that unusual because I feel like there are certainly translations of that throughout the U.S. as well. Totally, um, of course, yeah. Uh, um, I think my last question, and it's not really formed, but just just sort of a line that really stuck out to me as um, sort of speaking much broader than the context in which it's spoken. Um, when Pichet is talking to Rahim about his vision for this short film that's coming from a dream, um, and... Raheem says, I'm just a director of photography. Someone else has the vision. I just run the camera. And he says, vision, in the, he says, like, in the dream, like, it's from the, the story is, like, told through the camera. And he says, vision is the camera. And I think um, so much of the, that felt sort of, like, to wrap a lot of the play into it in the way that the, the, the lens or the camera through, and Raheem actually watches a lot of the action through through a camera lens, um, and the way that the way that we or anyone sort of looks at a situation is inextricable from their experience of it. Um, and yeah. I don't know if you want to sort of add add more to sort of what yeah, the, no, that I line think... or that moment. I, I I haven't sort of fully unpacked it, but I, that just stuck no, out. No, no, no. And I think what hearing you talk about it, I think something that I was, I mean, I think that this is a, even though we are so like photography and, you know, like images that are generated by cameras are like 
so part and parcel of our lives now that like the way, you know, like the sort of like wonder of what photography or film was, you know, 50 years ago is like, it's just so, we're so inundated with photographic imagery, but I still feel like we don't, um, like I was, I am still sort of like fascinated by the fact that like most of the time we still think about like photography as like capturing as like in terms of the object that it's capturing like we only we only see what the camera is seeing rather than seeing the sort of like the camera itself or what is behind the camera and so i think that question is sort of woven throughout the play because Raheem is talking to Pichet in scene one about like, like, oh, you know, like certain filmmakers want us to forget that there's a camera there and who wants to see the hand of the artist. And I just think that like, because the play is so much, uh, because these photographs, the revelation of these photographs of the grandfather, um, like reveal some sort of like, new image of the grandfather himself um like it it felt important to me that like uh like we be paying attention to that we start to sort of like point to the fact that like the camera inevitably like privileges the person that is like being seen by it rather than the sort of like invisible presence of the person that is like behind the camera um and that there's no like thing that i want to say about it but just because there were so many sort of like you know there are so many uh, like raheem behind the camera and like jitesh behind the camera versus like who is in front of the camera and who the who the person behind the camera is choosing to film and all of those choices and like who gets to be an artist is such a big part of the play for me. And the fact that Biche is sort of like, like, uh, like sees, like seems to see Raheem as the true artist and show seems to see Raheem as like, Oh, he's the director and children's like, Oh, well, he's just the, he's the DP. Um, like those kinds of power dynamics, in relationship to like where a person stands in relationship to a camera just kind of fascinates me generally in life. And so I think those fascinations showed up in the play in in different sort of oblique and subtle ways. Well, thank you so much for creating so many fascinating uh, elements to, to really dive into. I feel like we could keep talking about all of the elements and, and sort of how they interweave for another hour um but i uh thank you so much and congratulations on uh the journey this play has taken it was such a joy to talk about it in this kind of detailed way thank you yeah thank you Thank you so much for listening to today's episode of the present stage conversations with theater writers with misha chowdhury if you liked what you heard today, please leave a five-star rating, subscribe, give a review, or most importantly, please share this episode with a friend so our audience can continue to grow. You can tune back in next Friday for our conversation with Rachel Bonds, who's the playwright of Jonah currently running at Roundabout Off-Broadway. Hope I will catch you there on the present stage. <laughs>